Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Niana Dehanova, and today on the program, we're speaking with Dr. Tanya Bakhmetsiva from University of Rochester, where she is Associate Professor of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies and Associate Academic Director for the Susan B. Anthony Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies. Today, we're going to be discussing her recent book, Mother of the Church, Sofia Svechina, The Salon, and the Politics of Catholicism in 19th Century Russia and France. Uh, and Tanya, can you tell us a little bit about your scholarly background and how you first learned of Sofia Svechina and how you became interested in studying her? Well, this interest in Sofia Svechina goes back to um, my time in uh, Russia when I was a student at Moscow State University. Um, at that time, um, that was in 1990s, and that time coincided with um, kind of disintegration of Soviet Union, collapse of the Soviet Union, where a lot of people were turning to religion uh, in this vacuum of ideas that they suddenly found themselves in. Um, and um, I was a student in medieval history at that time and was fascinated with um, history of Catholicism, medieval Catholicism at that point. So I went to um, and explore what was the Catholic community in Moscow at the time. And to my great surprise, I discovered um, a lot of Russian Catholics. It was a small community, but very strong. And to me, it seemed like a lot of people, actually. So uh, that's how my interest in Russian Catholicism started, because it was a kind of a perplexing um, thing. Russia, as you know, is an Orthodox country, largely Orthodox. And to discover Catholics was uh, a bit of a surprise. And I was forever remain curious about how they got to Russia, who these Russian Catholics were. When I moved to the United States and started my um, PhD program, I was very fortunate to work with um, a scholar of Russian religious history, Professor Brenda Mean, uh, who studied Russian Orthodox women. Um, and kind of was a nice uh, and, and um, very lucky coincidence. I was interested in religious history, and she was doing religious history. And I uh, turned to Catholicism. Because uh, this question of uh, history and presence of Russian Catholics in Russia was um, kind of haunting me ever since I first encountered them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Russian Catholicism is certainly kind of an under-researched field, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. There were uh, a couple of uh, little things here and there. Um, there is some interest in Russian Catholics, and there are a couple of articles appeared in France, because a lot of these Russian Catholics of the period that I study, which is the beginning of the 19th century, Many of them uh, ended up in France or had close links to France. So there was more interest in France. And in fact, archives where I worked, um, which were in the small town of Moudon, run by Jesuits uh, who uh, established Center for Russian Studies um, near Paris. Um, and all of the Russian Catholic archives from the early 19th century were in France. But in the United States, um, English-speaking scholarship, it was not much done. I think there's a kind of a renewal interest in Russian Catholicism, and hopefully this book will contribute um, further to that, to support that interest. But yeah, it's not, uh, it's, 
not very well-researched area. Uh, and can you tell us a little bit about who was Sofia Svechina? Uh, you know, how does she fit into the uh, the history of Russian Catholicism? So she's, and, and the reason why I focused on her finally, because initially my, my interest was to study this period, the early uh, 19th century, and to look at the larger movement of Russian Catholicism, because um, there were a, a few fascinating people, and the movement, is uh, it's unclear how many people converted. Natalia Narushkina, one of the contemporaries of that um, in that time, she didn't convert to Catholicism, but she knew many of the, uh, many of, uh, the converts. She um, suggested that maybe there were about 300 converts. It seems a, a bit of a larger number, but, you know, let's say roughly maybe 150 or, you know, in hundreds. So I was interested in writing a, a larger history, kind of a history of this larger movement. But one person kept coming up, and uh, her name was Sofia Svich, and then I started digging in, and I um, discovered this fascinating woman who actually in her time was quite well-known and a very controversial figure in Russia, in France, so adored by many people. Uh, many biographies were published about her, and yet no one seemed to know anything about her. So I started digging in and uh, um, learned more and more about her. So she um, was born at the end of the 18th century, um, uh, 1783. Um, her father was the secretary of uh, Catherine the Great, a very educated family. She lost her mother when she was very young and was kind of a, a very typical Russian noble woman. Um, married um, young, but married a, a man who was much older than she was, uh, opened a salon. But then in um, 1815-1816, she developed this interest in Catholicism, um, went into seclusion with uh, many books which she studied and decided to convert to Catholicism. After that conversion, she moved to France where kind of her life really begins because in France in 1826, she opened a salon. Um, this was not unusual for a foreigner. There were a lot of foreigner, uh, foreign salon hostesses in Paris at the time, but her salon became extremely popular. It was focused on Catholicism and Catholic ideas and became a center of a liberal Catholic movement. And she became kind of a, a leader, one of the leaders of the liberal Catholic movement um, that all... Catholic intellectuals gravitated to that salon. Um, so it all seemed really fascinating to me, and I wanted to explore her life a little bit more uh, and decided to, rather than focusing on the history of Catholicism, kind of a larger history of Catholicism, I would focus on her and uh, through her looked at Russian Catholicism. Um, and just to go back a little bit uh, to St. Petersburg, what was the Catholic, the Russian Catholic community in St. Petersburg like at the time that uh, Svechina was uh, growing up? And what, what uh, impact did it have on her? So, um, as I said, uh, the community was strong, not large, and we don't know exactly what um, the, the numbers were. There was a mix of people, both French and Russians, because a lot of um, French immigrants um, found their home in Russia after the French Revolution. So this was a kind of a second wave of French immigration. There, were, there was an earlier wave where um, French were coming to Russia to serve as tutors and uh, as, uh, as teachers. Those were kind of adventurers. After the French Revolution, the wave of immigrants was um, mostly very ed well-educated people, uh, nobles, and a lot of Catholic priests. These Catholic priests um, uh, joined already existing community of Jesuits in Russia because when Jesuits, uh, Society of Jesus, Jesuits was um, banned by uh, the Pope in 1773, 
Catherine the Great gave them asylum in Russia, invited them to come and you know, reestablish their society. So it's thanks to Russia and Prussia to some extent that the Jesuits survived at that time. So they also found their, uh, their home there. So there was this French Catholic community. And um, because most uh, noble Russians, and when we speak about Russian Catholicism, we mostly speak about Russian nobility and mostly about court nobility, which is nobility of St. Petersburg, Um, rural nobility and uh, other classes were not really interested in Catholicism. So um, these Russian nobles, they all spoke French. They were very much um, cosmopolitan in their worldview. And so they mingled and mixed with um, with this French Catholics. But in my book, I argue that contrary to popular opinion, that is this French Catholics that then proselytized and converted Russians, I suggest that it's actually not the case. That um, at that time, in the in this um, a period after the French Revolution, um, people were interested in religion. These nobles who grew up in the age of rationalism suddenly were turning to religion and were asking questions about religion. So, and um, while some Russian nobles converted back to orthodoxy or kind of re-entered the orthodox church, turned back to their own religion, for others, that was not um, kind of um, the most obvious choice. Um, and through those discussions with uh, French priests, uh, um, a few other very distinguished uh, French Catholic intellectuals, such as um, Joseph de Mester, who's actually Sardinian, um, they uh, discovered Catholicism and um, embraced it. To them, it, it, it spoke more to them and it spoke their language. Um, so it was a mixed community of Russians and French. And But what's interesting is that um, most of Russian converts were women. And in my book, you know, I'm try, I tried to ask this question, why? Um, because a conversion to Catholicism was not necessarily um, um, punished at that time, which is the beginning of the 19th century. Um, the, rule, the laws um, kind of that punished conversions became much more severe later. But at the turn of the century, kind of the authorities didn't really um, persecute people who converted to, to Catholicism. But nevertheless, for men, conversions to Catholicism probably would not be a good thing for their careers, but for women it was much safer. So a lot of women were converting while um, men kind of mostly stayed away with some exceptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, and you talk a lot about in your book about uh, the gender aspect, right, um, as you just mentioned, of the conversion to Catholicism and how it sort of dovetails with these ideals of sentimentalist femininity uh, that were common in the late 18th century, early 19th century uh, with Karamzin. Can you comment a little bit about how sentimentalism uh, entered into this uh, process of Catholic women uh, or Russian women converting to Catholicism? So sentimentalism, um, yeah, I would say sentimentalism and romanticism um, were kind of movements that really uh, um, converged with this interest in religion. And obviously sentimentalism and romanticism, um, its movements prioritize feelings and emotions, their own open expression. Um, at that time, uh, for example, cultivation of friendships became a very, really important thing. Loving friends, valuing them were kind of expected patterns of behavior among the elites. They were a mark of an educated, noble person. Um, but just generally speaking about your inner life and about um, your spiritual life became um, something that uh, people did very openly and, and engaged into with great, great passion. Svechina and women in her circle were constantly writing about kind of um, documenting every 
smallest move in, of, of their soul. So this was all um, very much in, in fashion at the time, sharing these um, ideas. But also um, Catholicism became a, a very romanticized religion, which orthodoxy didn't, didn't have that appeal at that time. Many of these um, French Catholics who immigrated to Russia at the time were seen as martyrs, basically, because you know, we, we know the... Um, executions, uh, persecutions in France. And so these people who had to leave their the country to move to Russia, they were kind of like martyrs for their faith. And that uh, provided another appeal, was this romantic appeal of Catholic religion. So in some of these um, Russian women who converted to Catholicism um, write it in their memoirs how they felt um, like first Christians persecuted. They had to do things in secret. So there was this allure of uh, kind of romantic allure of um, persecuted Christianity and them uh, resisting these persecutions and suffering for it. So that's kind of, um, so there are several several um, aspects of sentimentalism and romanticism that converge. This interest in the inner, inner life and spirituality and emotions and uh, kind of... Um, romanticized, persecuted religion. Then there is also um, aesthetic appeal. Um, Many of the women describe how um, music and, um, you know, church services appeal to them. It's also kind of sentimental and romantic. So there's, you know, multiple forces, aesthetic, political, um, and personal that are kind of um, all converge um, for them in this and create this strong appeal of catalysis. Uh, and in terms of switching a sort of larger uh, conformity to the gender expectations of the time, uh, you talk a little bit also in your book uh, about the way that she uh, performs traditional female roles such as wifehood and adoptive motherhood as a way to sort of uh, f- actually facilitate her rise to power both in St. Petersburg and in Paris. Yes, um, she definitely, and this is one of the arguments that I make in my book, is that her appeal is that... Um, she builds her authority because uh, there's, there's an interesting paradox in her because she appears and everybody describes her as a very quiet woman, as a very demure almost woman um, who speaks in a very soft voice. And she, even in her writing, she preferred to write in pencil she, because it, it's, to, her, to her it felt like more ethereal. It's, it wasn't permanent. Writing in pencil was like speaking in whisper. She she once said in, in one of her writing and one of her memoirs. So um, she she emerges as this very quiet, very traditional woman, and yet she has an enormous degree of authority, uh, especially in France. People come to her and consult with her men, uh, men from liberal Catholic movement, um, really noted um, French Catholic intellectuals. They come and consult with her, not only on their books, but also on what to do. If they offered a position, a political position, they go to Svechina and consult with her. So there's this um, apparent tension how, how she seemed to be so traditional and such a dimmer woman, and yet so much uh, she has so, so much power and authority. So one of my questions was, how does she do it? And, and one of the suggestions that I um, have in my book is that it's precisely her ability to kind of balance on this um, border where traditional femininity, uh, border between traditional femininity and perhaps uh, non-traditional femininity. So she always makes it a point to embrace um, 
uh, all the markers of traditional femininity. Yes, she has a husband. Uh, he's much older, so it's not clear the, what the physical aspect of their relationship was, and they have no children. But she adopts uh, several. Uh, she adopts uh, first daughter, um, whom she raises. But after her daughter marries, she kind of takes under her wing several. Um, uh, other women, so serving kind of as a mother, fulfilling her um, her its role of motherhood, um, and and yes, in in her conversations, she always tries to present this herself as a traditional woman, um, and perhaps because of that, she's given authority because she's not threatening. She doesn't step. Um, leave these boundaries. Uh, she performs that authority within these boundaries, and yet, paradoxically, she also escapes them, but precisely because she says within them, if it makes any sense to you. Mm-hmm. Actually, one thing I found really fascinating uh, when you described the way that uh, she had an influence, maybe d- depending on who you asked right during that time, on Russians in Paris converting to Catholicism, there was maybe a sense in which her gender was used against her because, on the one hand, she was acting as this kind of maternal Turing figure, but on the other hand, she was also painted as something of a, this Catholic seductress, right, who was leading Orthodox men astray. Yes. Um, and that was more of a Russian perception. I actually did not see it. Um, I wish I could actually see more of it because I was interested in how she she exercised that influence and how did she uh, do it to convert people to Catholicism. I was very interested in that aspect, but I, I didn't find much evidence. Um, Russian perception was that, in fact, there is this woman uh, who lives in Paris and basically, she leads astray um, all these um, Russians who make a mistake of visiting her because she was very well positioned in Russian society. She knew Turgenev and Karmzin, so she was kind of well known. So Russians, Russian intellectuals who travel to Paris uh, often did go to her salon. So and the perception was that that's what she does. The moment they get to her salon, she starts her uh, proselytizing work. But what we see, and that's particularly clear in the case of Ivan Gagarin, who was her distant relative. Um, when and, and he had a diplomatic post in um, Germany, Berlin, but also in Paris. So when he visited her salon, we see, um, and he writes uh, about it later on in his memoirs, that basically how he was converted in her salon was because he encountered there these brilliant Catholic intellectuals. And at first, he was just sitting in the corner and listening to them, and a lot of their conversations made sense to him. So when he comes back to her and says that he wants to convert to Catholicism, she is far from from rejoicing in it. She is terrified because she knows, and this is now in the 1840s, where things are changing, um, that uh, laws against conversions to Catholicism are now actually applied. And if a person converts, especially a man in position of Gagarin, who comes from one of the most distinguished Russian families, has a brilliant career ahead of him, so if he converts to Catholicism, this career will be over. He will be stripped of his of his uh, um, status, of his wealth. Uh, his family reputation will be ruined. So it's a really bad thing. So she's terrified and tried to convince him not to do it. Um, he, however, persists and, and eventually converts. Um, and uh, when he decides it, she gives up and she uh, allows him to use the chapel in her uh, in her salon uh, for the uh, the procedure of conversion, where it had to, um, her friend um, her friends do the ceremony. So, but we see in this um, episode is that she's not an active proselytizer, but she never um, shies away from having a conversation about religion and expressing her opinion in her soft. Uh, a quiet, you know, way of speaking, 
but she she does have opinions. She's not going to hide them, but she does not um, actively proselytize and she does not actively seduce people to Catholicism as it was presented in Russia. Um, so it's a kind of an interesting, in the, and some of her um, biographers do mention it, that she converts by example. She just has this strong personality. And in fact, when I, I'm speaking about her in such, you know, with such admiration, because I do have this admiration. When I was writing this book, one of my uh, earlier reviewers said that, you know, there's t- too much admiration in this book. So I tried to tone it down a little bit. But she was this remarkable woman. Um, everybody speaks, she converts by example. It's just her mere presence uh, had such effect on people that uh, many of them thought, where did she find this uh, this kind of calm and this happiness? And they looked to Catholicism to um, you know locate that source of, of her wisdom, of her calmness, of her, of her remarkable presence. Um, so yeah, it's paradoxical. She was not a proselytizer, but I think she converted a lot of people um, by mayor, for example. Her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, I'd like to expand a little bit more. Uh, so, you talk about uh, the way that uh, conversion to Catholicism, especially among the influential members of the Russian nobility, was something that was looked uh, upon not very positively, right, in Russia. Uh, and when Svitlana was coming of age, there was a lot of uh, Catholic intellectual presence in St. Petersburg. And what was it that changed that situation and actually led Svitlana to move to Paris and start her small career? There? So, um, when she first develops the interest in Catholicism. Catholicism is one of many um, religions or kind of many of spiritual destinations for people who are looking for um, antidote to the French Revolution because many of these Russian nobles who later converted to Catholicism were embraced orthodoxy and by later I mean 1810s, 1815. So those would be the that, that's the period where um, people um, actively um, kind of search for religion actively. But in the early 19th century, they're dealing with the aftermath of the French Revolution. And many of these uh, nobles were basically children of the Enlightenment. They grew up um, um, embracing, you know, uh, French philosophers, uh, ideas of rationalism, and then suddenly the French Revolution happens. And, and to, many of them realize that, French Revolution is a direct result of this uh, of this ideas. This is essentially kind of ideas uh, uh, coming to fruition, and um, many uh, Russian Catholics, just or rather Russian nobles, as nobles in other countries, especially in France, turn away from ideas of rationalism and start, you know, looking for um, something to fill this vacuum of ideas. They um, turn to spiritual, but in Russia, again, I think I mentioned it before. The destination of the spiritual quest is not immediately obvious. Yes, Russia is orthodox, so it would be a natural choice for them to turn to orthodoxy. But orthodoxy is a religion uh, that is associated with kind of a lower classes. Uh, many of these Russian nobles don't even speak Russian, let alone Old Slavonic, that's the language that uh, church services use. So... Um, the uh, Russian cler- clergy, even though this is the period when Russian or- Orthodox Church is going through a very dynamic period of renewal, regeneration, but still for many Russian nobles, um, Russian clergy is uneducated, lower classes, lower castes, so does not have appeal. So some convert or some turn back to Orthodoxy, but not all. Then there is a, a large group of people who convert to um who kind of start um, looking into uh, uh, German mysticism 
and Alexander the, uh, the first emperor himself is really interested in it. And Catholicism is yet one of those um, one of those destinations. So um, in 1810s, around the war with Napoleon, Catholicism is one of many options, and um, the government is very lenient in terms of uh, you know this conversions. People convert; it's not necessarily approved, but it's it's people are not persecuted. And then suddenly we see something changing. After the war with Napoleon, um, when uh, Russians went to Europe and came back full of ideas about, you know, liberty and, you know, full of expectations of change, um, change the emperor well also went through change, but he became more and more um, kind of mystic. Um, he had some interesting ideas about religion, about spirituality, and suddenly Catholicism becomes um, the, the option to turn to Catholicism in your search for spiritual is kind of shut down. There is a scandalous case where uh, one of the members of the Galitzins family converts to Catholicism. He was a student at the Jesuit college. There were several Jesuit schools where Russian nobles, uh, children of Russian nobles, went to male children. Uh, and when he converts, this is it's used as a pretext for, to expel Jesuits from Russia. And that's where in the 1820s, uh, uh, late 1810s, early 1820s, where the atmosphere and the attitude towards Catholicism begin to change. Catholics are no longer welcomed as kind of um, one of the options for their spiritual quest. And then after the Decembrist revolt and when uh, uh, Nicholas I comes to power, that becomes even more um, problematic choice. Uh, Catholicism is now seen as a religion of enemies, is essentially anti-Russian, and Russian Catholics are perceived as traitors. And um, the laws of now being applied to them with a greater persistence and severity. So there's a change. You know, first Catholics were kind of perceived as one of many spiritual options, but that uh, clear, um, shortly changed. And by 1830s, this was no longer an option. The sort of the, the focal point, at least for Svetlana, uh, for these discussions of spirituality, partially in relation to Catholicism, was salon culture. So I'd like to get into a little bit about uh, what the salon culture looked like in Saint Petersburg. Um, so Svetlana was a latecomer in the salon, but but also kind of an early comer, maybe to Russian salons, because Russian salons, as many things in in Russia, including um, interesting Catholicism, you know, they adopted from the West. And um, initially, Russian salons were pale imitation of, of French salons, which you know, were very vibrant centers for intellectual life. In Russia, they were kind of uh, uh, centers for social life, where people were just kind of hanging hanging out. So Svechina didn't like that. And she was one of the few Russian saloniers who really wanted to to adopt the kind of the classic model of salon, which would be a center of intense intellectual discussions, uh, where um, uh, kind of intellectual celebrities would come and provide the center of gravitas for the salons. And in fact, she and a few other uh, close friends of hers, um, their salons was recognized as some of the um, kind of most interesting and most intellectually rigorous salons of the 1810s, 1812s. We, we see some salons blossom, but at this early stages, uh, Svechina and a few others um, were holding salons that were really um, truly intellectually kind of serious and sometimes even heavy, as described again by Natalia Narishkina, who, who adored Svechina, although Natalia Narishkina never converted to Catholicism. And when she went to Svechina's salon, she thought it was a little too serious. 
little too uh, too heavy in intellectual discussions. So, but that was good training for Svechina when she uh, moves to Paris, and you know, uh, a kind of a natural step for an active woman or an intellectually um, rigorous woman would be to open a salon, and after. A little bit of uh, searching and um, kind of um, period of apprenticeship. She opens her salon, and it's very natural for her to specialize in Catholicism because at that time, uh, salons kind of specialized depending on uh, the salon hostess' expertise, interests, uh, and connections. For example, that could be music salons or, or art salons if the hostess was, you know, good in music and singing. Um, uh, or was you know into arts and good at arts. So for Svechina, her field of expertise was religion, was uh, Catholicism in particular. And uh, when she decided to convert to Catholicism, or when she was um, asking herself, she went into seclusion and read a lot of books uh, about uh, Catholicism. So she was very well versed in history and theology, and that became her expertise. So. And that too, that salon too, when she opened it, she was somewhat dissatisfied with French salons because the French salons had this revolving doors. People were constantly coming and going and it was more of a social event. So she wanted to have something very serious and very, um, you know, where people could engage in um, deep discussions. And again, just like in Russia, some people, the famous literary critic Saint-Beuf thought that that was not a salon. It was essentially a, a theological school that was happening there every night because it was so um, deep and so serious and so kind of brave and people were engaged in you know, deep discussions. So, uh, yeah, there's a kind of a link. She was very consistent in uh, the vision of the salon and she brought it with her to, to Paris and she, got, she had good training in Russia um, and um, became quite successful when she opened it in, in Paris. Okay, so we're talking about liberal Catholics, right? Um, um, so liberal Catholics were quite um, quite interesting. Um, the, the, this was a movement, and, and it's difficult to because they never really defined themselves as as a movement. Liberal Catholic was uh, liberal Catholics was a, a later term, uh, and it's kind of you know we call them liberal Catholics, and there is a lot of debate about what does it actually mean. Are they Catholic liberals, uh, do they um, believe in liberal institutions above all, or are they liberal Catholics? What does liberal Catholic? So there's a lot of uh, uh, kind of um, debate about how to use this term and whether this is even an incorrect term, and people keep keep offering different opinions. So I, I'm sticking with this term just because it's kind of widely used, and I tried changing it and from liberal Catholics to Catholic liberals, it just doesn't work. So essentially, this was um, a group of people who were very concerned about the uh, stage of, uh, or state of religion, or state of Catholicism in France um, after the French Revolution, and especially in the 1830s, when, you know, the 1830s revolution, there was a lot of uh, um, violence against Catholic Church, and Catholic Church was essentially perceived as the old regime institution that should be done with, as the old regime is, you know, is done with, so we should get rid of Catholicism, and, and Catholic Church essentially lost um, its cultural influence in, in, in France, and it's lost its political influence in France. And liberal Catholics were a group of people who were concerned about that, but they were also looking for ways to revitalize Catholic Church and, and um, 
kind of put it in sync with what was happening in modern society. That is, new political institutions were emerging, right? Uh, new parties were emerging, you know, the movement of liberalism. So um, Catholic Church was no longer... Um, uh, it was no longer possible for Catholics to rely on the support of of uh, of the monarchy and survive because of this support, because the monarchy was essentially uh, kind of uh, in its final stages. So, what would happen to Catholics after you know, the old regime is is completely dead? Uh, so, liberal Catholics were suggesting that there is in fact no contradiction uh, between and, and Catholicism does not stand in opposition to all this new political changes and cultural changes such as uh, rise of science and scientific um, worldview. So, liberal Catholics were trying to um, align uh, Catholic beliefs and Catholic practices with the the new world that the, the mo- with the modern world, and we're trying to reconcile modern world and um, Catholic religions. Um, one of the founders was uh, of, of liberal Catholic movement, and again, they were not called that that and that time uh, was Felicite Laminet, who founded the newspaper L'Avenir, which uh, appeared first in 1830s. And the, uh, the slogan that they used was God and Liberty. The paper was aggressively democratic and it's demanded rights of local administration and large suffrage, separation of church and state, universal freedom of conscience, freedom of education, freedom of press. So all these liberal, uh, very liberal things, um, they actually were advocating um, for. Um, And among, uh, Laminet attracted several other people. Among other uh, noted uh, members of this movement were uh, priest Lacordaire, Henri Lacordaire, and uh, uh, French uh, noble Charles Montalembert. So these were the people eventually, the, the movement didn't, or rather this this early collaboration of Laminet, Lacordaire, Montalembert did not last. Um, they decided that they will bring their new radical ideas, which they thought were very beneficial to the Catholic Church. They decided to take them to, uh, to Rome, where they were hoping the Pope will approve of them because French... Um, um, hierarchy, church hierarchy, were very critical of these ideas, but the Pope wasn't also wasn't supportive either. And after some tensions, this early collaboration disintegrated. Um, so Laminet went with liberty, and uh, Montalembert and Lacordaire went with the Catholic Church, but preserving this desire to modernize it. So it is at that m- moment in uh, mid 1830s where in this kind of state of disarray and disintegration that members of the movement, Lacordaire de Montalembert, find their way to Svechina's Salon. And what I say in, in, in my book is that essentially Svechina helps to reorganize, revitalize the movement. She provides this physical center, but also intellectual center for them uh, where they can come, uh, gather again, regroup, uh, debate the ideas, uh, and attract new members. Uh, people were kind of gravitating to Svechina Salon to see these people, to to talk to them, and uh, her salon became the kind of a gathering place for them and um, an, an important tool in revitalizing and restructuring, rebuilding the movement. Uh, so uh, Svechina experienced some of her own conflicts, right, in terms of her uh, political affiliations and uh, the way that she related to the liberal Catholic movement, as we call it now, uh, particularly in terms of the way that she uh, perceived legitimism in the monarchy, as well as uh, the separation of church and state. Can you talk a little bit about that? So Svechina was a, a modernist, a legitimist in, in, her, in her views. 
But again, paradoxically, as she always succeeded um, kind of balancing in this intersection of various ideas. She also somehow succeeded in being a liberal. But basically, one of her main ideas was that, yes, monarchy is the best uh, form of political um best political system, best form of political rule, but um, the Pope is the ultimate head of the church, so um, not a monarch. So her approach to religion uh, or kind of um, place of religion was a very liberal, basically kind of laissez-faire approach to religion. Just let it be. Religion you know, should be separate from all of this, even though a benevolent uh, monarch can do a lot of good for uh, for religion, but sometimes he could also suffocate. Uh, he could also suffocate religion, and in some cases, use religion for his purposes. So it is best if kind of uh, you know less a fair approach is used when it comes to um, to religion. So um, which is you know seems like a, a kind of a reasonable attitude and. Um, um, liberal Catholics uh, felt like that she shared most of their ideas. Um, she did have, however, some problems with certain ideas. For example, um, uh, liberal Catholics, especially Montalembert, who, who was very close to uh, Polish uh, immigrants in, in in Paris, and of course, Polish immigrants in Paris ended up there because of the uh, crushed revolt against the Russian Empire. So he was very close to the Poles, especially Adam Mickiewicz. Um, at some point, Montalembert had a romantic relationship with a, a Polish uh, noblewoman. Um, so he was very much um, supportive of Polish uh, rights and nation, kind of nation's right for self-determination. Well, Svechina was very much against the independence of Poland. Um, she uh, was very much um, kind of against that. So they parted on some points. And in fact, she and, and Montalembert disagreed in it and parted their ways for a while until they finally mended their relationship. So there were some tensions. She was not consistent in her views. Um, but um, some of the views she was able to reconcile, for example, science. She was always reading scientific, the most recent scientific articles, discoveries, uh, was very interested in it, and she did not see any problems between reconciling science and theology. So, um, yeah, she was not fully consistent in, in, her, in her liberal Catholic views, uh, but somehow was forgiven for that by liberal Catholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was the end of Svechina's life like? Did she end her life in Paris uh, in this society or did she return to St. Petersburg? No, she, um, there was one moment where um, she didn't want to go to Russia. She didn't want to go back to Russia. She did have to make a short trip um, in, in kind of the end of 1830s uh, to talk to, because at that point, um, Nicholas called all the Russian subjects back to Russia. So uh, she just could not. Her husband was uh, was ill. She was ill. And she was ill all her life. Uh, um, it's unclear to me. And I never quite get a clear picture of what her illness was. But she always, always suffered from great... She was always pain. Um, so she went uh, to Russia to ask Nicholas's permission to remain in Paris. And with great difficulty, she had to use all of her multiple court connections, uh, all her friends had to advocate on her behalf, and she did manage to to get this permission. So she was great relief. She returned to Paris and stayed uh, in Paris until her death. She died in 1957. 
this was basically kind of the end of the Salon year. So her, the end of her life corresponds to the end of the Salon year. Things were getting out of control. Catholics, uh, liberal Catholics were, when they're at, were under attack. Um, they really discredited themselves because they, because they supported um, uh, Louis Napoleon. Um, and then there was a coup uh, and liberal Catholics were kind of implicated in it. There was uh, kind of a, uh, they were splitting, liberal Catholics were splitting and, you know, which political, where to place their political um, allegiances. Lacordaire went was the Republic. He was, he became a Republican. He, you know, kind of uh, supported the workers. Uh, Montalembert was very concerned that the revolution will take place, so he became more conservative. So there was a lot of kind of um, um, division within their own ranks, and there were divisions uh, larger. They were attacked by everyone. And as I said, the political culture began to change too. There was a lot of partisanship. So Svechina was suffering greatly, not only from her physical pains, but also from this emotional pain, seeing what was happening both to her friends, members of her salon, and also attacks that they were subjected to by others, by the press, uh, conservative Catholic press. So uh, it was uh, um, her last years were a time of great uh, physical and, and, and emotional anguish, uh, anguish where she was essentially, the salon was dying and she was dying as well. Um, and she died peacefully in her, uh, in her room in um, 1857, surrounded by friends. Lacordaire managed to see her. Um, then he left uh, because she showed signs of recovery, but you know she died as soon as he left. Um, there was a great, great kind of despair among her friends when she died. Um, uh, people they were devastated, but immediately start working on commemorating and and and, and um, writing down um, her life. Yeah, so it was um, kind of a, a sad story of her death because it was also a death of uh, a salon culture, basically, in um, in uh, Paris at that time. Uh, now, you just mentioned uh, the, the people immediately started uh, writing about her life, right? And there's a, a, a sense in which your biography is sort of a metabiography and that you talk about uh, switching as many biographers uh, and the way that they, uh, in some sense, almost painted a hagiography of her. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about sort of her legacy and how uh, her biographers after her death portrayed her? Right. So um, this is one of the things that I was kind of interested in um, when I started working on this, um, on, on her uh, I've discovered they were endless, endless biographies. They all uh, came out um, the first 20 years after her death, um, and they were translated into various languages. Um, there was a lot of uh, resonance. They, they, you know, they were published and republished. There were collections of her letters, and it all kind of was surprising to me because, yeah, she was an important salonier, but there were a lot of important salonier. For example, Madame Rocamier was an important salonier at that time, but I did not see... Uh, comparable number of biographies and and uh, volumes of her letters and diaries and reflections. So it was clear to me that there was some sort of um, need for this. And biography, uh, you know, is never is never really neutral, right? So there's bi- biographies are written in response to certain needs of the the society at the time because biographies of talk to us about people who were able to answer some questions that we're all struggling with. So I was very curious, and why is that that there's such an interest and need for her biography? What is it that that she was able to do that these biographies now uh, are trying to kind of um, 
show others how to do as well. So, and most of her biographies were written in a very uh, geographical way. They were they followed the typical uh, geographical tropes. How oh, when she was a little girl, she already exhibited all the signs of you know the future saint. So essentially, to me, this was um, uh, a, a, an attempt to write a modern saint, and saints. Uh, always serve as models, or they always provide models of behavior, right? So in the Catholic Church, saints essentially, you know, Catholics supposed to emulate their lives. So Svechina was written by her bi- biographers uh, as a modern saint, and so what what they were trying to do um, is to use her life to show that it is possible to reconcile. Um, being living in the world, not being um, a monk or a nun, uh, being a worldly person, but reconcile deep faith, being a worldly person, but also all the modern things. She was the biographers insist that she was a liberal. She was her mind was very scientific and very scholarly. Uh, she embraced liberal institutions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So essentially, she became just like her salon served as this uh, gathering. Um, place for liberal Catholics, her biographers continued uh, to perform the same role. She became a modern saint. She became a model of behavior. Look, you can do this too. You can be a saintly person, but you can also be a thoroughly modern person. So this was uh, a kind of, a, um, you know, they were using her life uh, to make the point that liberal Catholics maybe perhaps failed to make convincingly on a larger scale. So now Svechina became the spokesperson that, you know, you can be Catholic and you can be liberal. So that's how I see this biographies. And in a way, my biography was uh, kind of my task in my biography was to undo this and to release the questions that were suppressed and packed into these old biographies to, um, to release these questions and explore them and see, uh, you know, how these biographers deal with these questions and what they're trying to, to get at. Would you say to a certain extent your biography is sort of uh, Sophia Svechina, the human being, as opposed to Sophia Svechina, the saint? Yes. I, I, you know, even though, again, um, I think I get carried away slightly. I was uh, too under the spell of Svechina. And as I said, one of my earlier um, reviewers said, that's a little too much admiration. Um I did try to be critical and um, I suspected some of, uh, you know, selfish, some selfish motives here and there, not all altruistic Svechina, she does it all forgotten. So, you know, I did, I did try to, um, to kind of, you know, maybe question some of the things that uh, her biographers uh, were suggesting uncritically and unquestionably. But for me, her biography was, it's less of a biography of Svechina, as I saw it, but it was a biography of the, of her time. So I approach her life not in a linear way, such as let me recover this, um, even though it is linear, because, you know, we started when she was, she's, you know, born, et cetera, et cetera, kind of go to the end of her um, uh, life. But the way I saw it, it's a, it's a, a narrative that's organized around questions, questions that are really... Uh, important and raise really important um, issues pertaining to Russian and French history. Why did people convert to Catholicism, for example? So, and then I use Svechina's life to answer this question. How did women build their authority and why in some cases this authority is successful, in some cases it's not? And then I use Svechina's life to uh, approach this question. You know, the place of liberal Catholicism in French politics. Look at Svechina. So, 
um, it's less about Svetlana, I feel like, but it's more about that time and looking at how one person can really, in her life, get to all of the most important um, questions of that time. So do you see Western Christian churches holding the same appeal for Russian intellectuals today? Right. So I would say at the beginning of uh, this interview, my own experience, um, the moment of uh, this appeal of Catholic Church and Western Church was the strongest in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. Uh, which is kind of a time similar to some degree to the period when these when Svechina and, and women from her circle were converting, which was in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, the French Revolution, which left this ideological vacuum. Uh, people were uncertain how to fill it, and they were kind of turning to religion. This is kind of what I saw happening in 1990s in Russia, where there was the same ideological vacuum. People were turning from rationalism and Marxism to spiritual things and not necessarily sure and certain where to turn. So some turned to orthodoxy, some turned to Catholicism. Um, um, there was interest in Protestantism, Buddhist sect, and so on and so on. So it's same impulses. In Catholicism at that time was seen as a religion of educated people. Orthodoxy implicated itself in um, collaboration with KGB, etc. So um, Catholicism still had this kind of, uh, you know, ritualized religion, religious appeal, but without some of the compromising aspects. Um, but now I, th- I think the appeal of Catholicism is waning um, because of the rise of nationalism. Um, it's, and it's, again, kind of very similar to what was happening after the Napoleonic Wars, where Russians suddenly became very Russian. Um, so Russia sees itself in opposition to the West. So same thing as Nicholas I, uh, opposition to the West. So there's more persecution against Catholics. And Catholics, there's still Russian Catholics. I'm, I'm you know, I'm cl- I have close connections to uh, Catholic community in Russia. Um, people still coming to Catholic Church, but it is um, it does not have the same appeal. And it's uh, became much more dangerous to become Catholic because the idea is, it's much more anti-Russian to be Catholic now than it was in 1990s when um, um, I was a member of that community. So, um, yeah, um, that's why... So Catholics are seen now as basically cultural and political traitors of uh, Russia and Russian identity. That's why I, I, I see this project as a very important one because it restores Catholicism to history of Russia. Um, it shows that members of some of the greatest Russian families who you know, served Russia and Russian interests for centuries, they converted to Catholicism not out of rejection of their Russianness, but in an attempt to make Russia part of Western legacy, kind of expanding their Russianness. Um, and Svechina and others quite... Um, clearly and also explicitly argued that it was possible to be a Russian patriot and um, and Catholic. So, yeah, you know, I, I think it's important to um, give them voices and, and, and recognize uh, who they were and, and look at their ideas and how they reconcile this, this tensions of Russianness and Catholicism. And they thought Catholicism is a universal religion. There is no national identity within it. So, 
you know, there is place for a Russian within Catholicism, and Russian can be Catholic without losing any of his or her Russianness. Thank you, Dr. Bakhmetseva. It was wonderful talking to you today. Um, thank you for taking the time to discuss your book. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you.